That should be the sound of our... Yeah, the intro, just... (laughs) Hello, and welcome to another episode of Discovering Darwin, a podcast dedicated to the writings and musings of Charles Darwin. I'm your host, uh, Dr. James Wagner, and I am joined every episode by my two esteemed colleagues who are now particularly more esteemed than they were in the past. Dr. Josh Atkins. Hello, Josh. Hi, James. You're definitely more esteemed because didn't your podcast win an award? Uh, Yep. For the third year in a row, the Cromcast has been awarded the Black Lotus Award from the Robert E. Howard Foundation. That's pretty awesome. Uh, Congratulations. And now each one of you have... The actual, you can each have your own. We have our own plaques. That's pretty nice. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. If you don't listen to that podcast, you should. It's awesome. Uh, and Sarah Bray, you're doubly esteemed now as Dean Bray. <laughs> Associate Dean Bray. <laughs> or as we like to call you. Ass. <laughs> Ass Dean Bray. Dot. But Ass no, dot. congratulations. Cheers. Uh, we should give you, she'll be spending a lot more I'll time. Be drinking a lot more. In the, yes, in the hallowed halls of administration and out of our halls of science. But we will get a, have our lunch occasionally and try to get you back for some more podcasts. Now, of course, dear listener, you might be going, oh, that's smooth, Wagner. You acted like you haven't been gone for a year and a half. Because uh, what else could I do? Yes, I went back and looked, and it's been a year and a half since we did the last Galapagos. Excellent Galapagos episode. But, and... and we all felt really, really bad leaving Charles Darwin left in the <laughs> Pacific Ocean, not actually getting home. Poor guy, man. He'd already been out for four and a half years. Yeah, and we just, four, yeah at this point, whatever. four years, yeah. <laughs> so uh, we've been, you know, life gets in the way, as we've talked about. But we finally found time to get back into the saddle again. And today we're going to talk about... Um, chapters 18 and 19 of the voyage of the beagle and just to remind ourselves what we were doing <laughs> and maybe you dear listener in case it's this podcast showed up on your feed like, and you're I like forgot that podcast existed yes i don't i didn't even know i was subscribed to it um as we said before we're, we're sort of doing a, a reading close reading of the voyage of the beagle which is darwin's first published work um well second published work the first one was a technical um, a version of this, but this became popularized and reprinted for general populace. Um, and The Voyage of the Beagle is t- 21 chapters long. And as I said, today we're talking about chapters 18 and 19. And it's kind of interesting at this point, as we said, the last episode, if you've listened to it, was us talking about the Galapagos and how Darwin um, did all that work in the Galapagos, torturing tortoises and uh, marine iguanas and other things. Um, And then he feels, and we'll talk about that in in today's uh, podcast, that he's on his way home, that he's kind of, he's going to cross this mental and uh, geographical point in the journey that psychologically for him is on his way home. But as we said, he left originally on this voyage on the 27th of December, 1831, Um, And it's now uh, November 15th, 1835. So he's four years and a half into the journey. And he won't get back to England until October of 1836, about another little uh, less than a year later. So he's still got a a ways ahead of him um, because of some Fitzroy decisions on (laughs) navigation. But at this point, he is um, heading toward the Garden Island of Tahiti, which at this point has been well known as a sort of 
tropical paradise of scantily clad, bronze and toned, bosomed males and females with uh, quite, uh, what's the word I'd want to say? Friendly behaviors, I guess. Yeah. Yes. Or as Jeremy Payton would say, the sailors enjoyed the sport there. Yes. <laughs> but uh, uh, Josh, if you could sort of orient us uh, geographically about where, where is Tahiti Islands relative to where he just left, the Galapagos? And it's been a long journey, right? It was from the Galapagos to this is what, 3,000 change? Yeah. So Darwin opens chapter 18 with the following quote. The survey of the Galapagos archipelago being concluded, we steered toward Tahiti and commenced our long passage of 3,200 miles. So we're traveling west across the Pacific Ocean to the island of Tahiti, um, which is in the southern hemisphere, just 17 degrees south of the equator. Um, so if you are in Hawaii, uh, you want to look south and jump right into the ocean and start swimming. <laughs> Uh, and if you're in the Galapagos, as I said, you sail west across the Pacific Ocean to this beautiful, verdant, black sand-beached island uh, that we know as Tahiti. It's part of uh, French Polynesia. And Sarah brought up this Society Island thing. Um, yeah, they were named uh, the Society Islands by, by Cook, Captain Cook uh, when he arrived there. And, and people thought that maybe it was because the Royal Society had you know, partially sponsored his trip. But um, he said, oh, they're, I called them the Society Islands because they're a group of islands in close contact with one another, like a community. Uh, what did you guys notice about this, uh, the two chapters that we've read? today compared to what we've read previously to this point? Because to me, it was quite different. The tones seem different. Um, I think we've all talked about to ourselves in preparation for this episode, there is less biology and there's less geology, or it seems intermittent. It seems more of a travel log or a, a narrative of his experiences. Would you guys agree with that? Yes. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. Um, in the Tahiti section of chapter 18, Darwin is still listing off some uh, plants that he sees and some uh, notes on the landscape. Uh, talks about the, all the wild banana that's just everywhere. Um, the fact that uh, potato, I think, is, is important in, in New Zealand. Um, so I circled every mention of some food <laughs> crop um, and, and tree, and it's, it's a lot of the um, the biology within this chapter especially mm -hmm. is, you know, there are bananas here, there are pineapples, there are coconuts and he comments on the uh, flavor and savoriness <laughs> of these various fruits, right? Well, it, the tone of the Tahitian part is very positive, right? It seems like a very uh, happy vacation-minded <laughs> I got a nice Airbnb on the beach Yeah, and, and I, went on an adventure like, so he's still doing his Darwin things. Yeah, definitely um, on this one I like his self-consciousness. Did you pick up on any of the self-consciousness about There's the one about the bathing? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Do you want to read that quote? Josh, you have it. I have it right here. No, go ahead. A white man bathing by the side of a Tahitian was like a plant bleached by the gardener's art compared with a fine dark green one growing vigorously in the open fields. <laughs> yeah. You got this great image of Darwin laying on the beach. This Pasty, pasty white or or maybe farmer tanned <laughs> oh i'm i'm thinking uh 
bright red. He's laying, <laughs> he's laying on the beach. But yeah. at this point, it's been four years of sea travel, so he's got to have a little bit of yeah, a bronze. Yeah, but like, since he's on vacation, maybe he loosened his waistcoat. And yes. these things that have not seen the sun ever. Right, as he said, the, the white man bathing. Yeah, but he describes the Tahitians uh, quite positively as well, right? And, and that he enjoys their fashion and their uh, physical attributes. Um, I, I was thinking about that. There was a, and he also talks a lot about the um, tattoos on them as well, right? That they they u- utilize tattoos to mark a time period, so that you would know, sort of like a fashion statement. I always thought it was interesting. Like, you have to wear bell bottoms for the rest of your life mm-hmm. if you were born in the '60s or I mean the '70s, because that's the fashion at that time. And he was talking about how they have different tattoo fashions that sort of harken back to specific time periods. Yeah, the, the quote, um, the missionaries have tried to persuade the people to change this habit, but it is the fashion, and that is a sufficient answer at Tahiti as well as at Paris. <laughs> <laughs> this is just what we do here. Yeah. Which is kind of nice, because, I mean, it, you know, we've talked in previous episodes kind of about uh, how Darwin relates to two different people he encounters on these travels, and he, of, of all of them, I feel, with the Tahitians, he's been the most... That are, I should say of non-European peoples yes, yeah. that he's been the most um, impressed by, and um, I, I don't know, just almost as, almost to the like the gaucho, uh, the, the gauchos, right? Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Like, just, maybe, but not so much of their equals, right? Like the gauchos, yeah. but over here, I guess he thinks of them as, yeah, they have they have qualities that are different, but there's positive aspects of those qualities. Um, what else did you guys notice about his uh, visit to? Tahiti in terms of uh, the people, because there was British people there too, right? So it wasn't just a tropical paradise with no European influence. Uh, or maybe that was really a bad prompt. I, can, I, I'm not, I, I take, can't speak to that. Yeah, okay. I, didn't, I didn't take notes on the European. Well, <laughs> I guess what I'm thinking of is one of the tones that he does talk about here is his, he is evaluating the impact of missionaries in this area. Right, mm-hmm. and he had read books prior to on the on that three thousand mile leg of the journey. You were talking about Josh from the Galapagos to Tahiti. He spent his time writing about volcanic islands, but he also spent his time reading all the books in the library of previous explorers who spoke um, both positively and negatively about the impact that European missionaries had on the local people. He is very open to seeing how the Tahitians who have definitely been um, Christianized, right? Um, And he was under the impression from his readings that the Tahitians were gloomy and unhappy and were sort of in uh, forced servitude to Christianity, and that wasn't what he saw at all, right? He found that they they seemed very positive um, examples of Christians. Yeah, except when they go on their long hike into the, uh, the mountains and across the island, uh, he brings with him a flask of, of rum or something, mm-hmm. and he tries to get everyone to, to share a drink with them, and they're like, oh, oh, no, no, missionary. Yeah, this, yeah. it was a big no-no. They called it ava, which is yeah. named after the local um, plant that you would, remember he, in South America as well, you, you would chew this leafy plant and get a buzz. And so they called anything that would give you a buzz ava, which was forbidden. Yeah, yeah so the, the, the natives, natives, the Tahitians had fully accepted this Christian view, even away from the view of the missionary, the priests or the, the missionaries, because like you said, Josh Darwin was deep in the jungle when this exchange occurred. 
And, uh, you know, he, I don't, I don't have the quote in front of me, but when he was on that little excursion, excursion, um, he also talks about how the Tahitians who were with him, like, Oh, am I confused though? Maybe this was in New Zealand, so we can cut this later. But doesn't he talk about that they, on their own volition, prayed? Mm-hmm. Before? That was these groups. Okay. Yep. Yeah. yeah. P- prayed before, and also I'm trying to find the quote now. There, there was also a point where he, because I have my paraphrased uh, in my notes, but he praised their moralities, their morality even above that of current Europeans. What we're talking about is there's one moment that uh, Darwin decides that he wants to go deep into uh, the island up a a valley. Now, these are volcanic islands, and so these valleys are formed from erosion through the volcanic rock, um, and they can create these very steep um, valley walls that are uh, volcanic and rough, but then they get sort of embedded with ferns and other kinds of plants that grow in the in the crevices of the volcanic rock and he and two guides walked up this stream up into the mountain as they and then climbed these vertical walls to uh i'm not sure what where their final destination was to be except as far as they could go is that i think they're Uh, just going up yeah to see what we can see (laughs) and yeah they described some of these very difficult uh journey that they took and he talks about how the Tahitians could climb amongst the ledges and they searched for fruit. And then they would find these tracks along the edges that he couldn't even see. And then they would follow it up there. And he even had to like lean, push against one wall. And as he shimmied himself up this five or 600 foot uh, vertical wall to, the, to this overhang. And then they ended up camping that night. Do you remember that? And this was so Bear grills. They, These two Tahitian men would go underwater and grab fish mm-hmm. and, and prawns and then they would make a fire and and uh, make a lean-to and set up Darwin beautifully yeah. for an evening to sleep. And he's like, it rained in the morning and they were dry. And Well, and I loved it too because he was like, he told them, oh, bring, you know, some clothes and some food and like they just showed up. No food, no extra clothes or no shoes anything yeah. yeah and they just yep oh there's plenty of food where we're going yeah and they were able to live it. off the land <laughs> so it was a pretty exciting trip i mean like i said it, it it's one of those uh very difficult journeys that darwin makes um i think it's probably the last of the difficult journeys because i think from then on it's like yeah, riding pretty. a boat and riding a horse and walking where this one was definitely um very difficult and i think it well, an interesting thing for me is uh, Darwin is sort of singing the praises of the uh, the way in which these uh, Tahitians are devoutly Christian and following those tenets of Christianity. And uh, he says, the, I think the quote you were looking for earlier, Sarah, those travelers who think that a Tahitian prays only when the eyes of the missionary are fixed on him should have slept with us that night on the mountainside. So clearly mm-hmm. oh, the the prevailing view is that well they're the Tahitians are playing paying lip service to Christianity but they actually do believe it and that sort of lesson I think becomes important to Darwin later on the next page or two uh, two pages later he says um, uh, regarding religion he's talking about just wars uh, infanticide a consequence of that system bloody wars where the conquerors spared neither women nor children that all of these have been abolished and that dishonesty, intemperance, and licentiousness have been greatly reduced by the introduction of Christianity. In a voyager, to forget these things is base ingratitude. 
For should he be chanced to be at the point of shipwreck on some unknown coast, he will most devoutly pray that the lesson of the missionary may have extended thus far. So I, I think that's neat because often Darwin is used as kind of uh, uh, an example or, or a luminary for agnosticism or atheism. But when you take the, the entire course of a person's life, you know, of course they're going to believe certain things more strongly and less strongly as, as you move on. And for Darwin here, like this is maybe in my mind, as it's written, kind of reaffirming the positive values that Christianity, Christianity can have within people. Uh, especially given the fact that they're in uh, journeying through areas of the world where um, uh, maybe the the native people are more aggressive, mm-hmm. maybe they're cannibals, right? right. Isn't as, as they describe in New Zealand, exactly, right? And, and in this area was a hotbed of missionary activity. Um, so from Tahiti uh, westward was one. Uh, religious group from England that was doing the majority of that missionary work. And then New Zealand and, and northward and, and, and into Australia was a totally different um, missionary group. And that's the missionary group that Fitzroy associated with when he tried to do the Terra de Fuegans. Now, it's interesting, and Darwin kind of alludes to this idea that one missionary style, the Tahitian style, was more positively accepted and he he talks about whether it's because of the personality of the peoples or if it's the way the church itself was run there compared to the 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 maori and the new zealanders approach to christianity and you have to wonder you know it if some of this doesn't depend on the disposition of the uh the british or whatever Mm -hmm. nation uh is sending mission uh, workers, or right. whatever you want to call them, like and, and missionaries. Think, right, and the argument was made that the, the Fitzroy group of missionaries were really not theologically trained, but they were just no. really religious people who said, I'm going to go save those heathens, whereas the Tahitian version of that missionary was very sort of uh, theologically grounded, hmm. um, and they had to go through training and sort of associated with the, the church university model. Hmm. Whether that was the reason why they, some f- did better than others, you know, it's hard to say. But it definitely, Darwin is evaluating the impact of Christianity on these people because he, he's already been told it's been a failure. And, but here in Tahiti, he thinks it's not. It's interesting, too, because I think just another thing of a comparison between these two chapters and the rest of the book as we've talked about it is that he's now firmly in British colonies Mm -hmm. whereas in the past it was Spanish right and so I think there's also that like you know the greatness that is Britannia oh yeah right going on a little bit even though I mean we'll see when we get to New Zealand he has some serious issues issues. (laughs) well and we've seen also the uh, work of missionaries fail Fitzroy and Richard Matthews, mm-hmm. uh, who was the missionary that hopped on board the Beagle and was, had, had set sail for Tierra del Fuego um, to establish m- missions and re- like firm up the, the, yeah. the Christian values mm-hmm. of the native people in, in Tierra del, del, del Fuego. Um, which didn't work out so well. Yeah, we have a, our podcast talks about that um, early on. I think it's the second podcast of the season 
um, we talk about the ter- uh, boat memory and all the I others. I think that's only, I think it's the one right before Galapagos, which was our last one. Oh. It's not that yeah, deep. It's not that, <laughs> oh, it's not that deep. <laughs> it's not that long not, ago. Not chronologically, <laughs> but uh, temporally, yeah, it's oh. been a while. Um, but so this, this guy, Richard Matthews, is still on the boat with them. He's journeyed on from Tierra del Fuego, um, and he ultimately wants to go to New Zealand to meet up with his brother, I think? Yes. Who is doing mission work in New Zealand. That is correct. And so we'll return to him in just a bit. But I, I think it's striking that along this journey, we see examples of mission work that is successful and seems to have benefited the, the native people, the local people, as well as uh, colonists. And you could make the argument that maybe it benefits colonists more than it mm-hmm. benefits native people. Um, that, that would be an interesting conversation to have, I think. But uh, all along this journey of the Beagle, we have great sort of um, glimpses into the efficacy of missionary work and what happens when it goes well and what happens when it doesn't go so well. You're breathing into the microphone. <laughs> Sounds like you're, yes, tell me more, Josh. (laughs) (laughs) One of the stories that he tells in Tahiti that I thought was very intriguing is when um, Fitzroy calls that council to deal with um, a ship that had been damaged and and the government of England was trying to collect money. And so he called the queen in, the queen of Tahiti, and they had this, all these chiefs from the different areas of the islands came to have a council. And it's really interesting when you read it because Darwin writes about it being quite surprised how well it went in that it was very organized. They uh, listened to Fitzroy's argument that they, the chief who had stolen the boat owed money back to the person and the, and the, and the government was here to collect the money. And, and, and it was one of those interesting you know, dynamics where other chiefs were like, well, I didn't steal this. Why do we have to pay, right? And there was this tension but they talked it out, and the queen and the, and the other chiefs agreed that they would, in fact, uh, pay and made payment arrangements. Um, and what I thought was striking, two things. One is that uh, they made laws right on the spot. So they would, they would ask Fitzroy, well, how in your country do you handle these kinds of situations, you know, conflict or whatever? And Fitzroy would explain it to them. And then they would talk amongst themselves like a parliament and then say, okay, that's our new rule. That's how we're doing it (laughs) right there on the spot. Um, So that was kind of uh, surprising. But the other thing that I thought was funny when Darwin describes this uh, Tahitian queen, he has this um, description. He says, the queen is a large, awkward woman without any beauty, grace, or dignity. She has only one attribute, a perfect immovability of expression under all circumstances and a rather sullen one. (laughs) So you could just imagine this uh, large Tahitian Polynesian woman just sitting there with this, yeah, with just the frozen continents of, you're not gonna make me happy, you're not gonna make me sad, I'm just gonna listen to you. I thought the other thing that was kind of interesting, because he actually speaks of the men a lot and how beautiful and aesthetically pleasing they are, and, but it seems he's not impressed with the women on as a whole and yeah so sure he, charles yeah well he's, he says i was much disappointed in the personal appearance of the women they are far inferior in every respect to the men the custom of wearing a white or scarlet flower in the back of the head or through a small hole in the ear is pretty a crown of woven coconut leaves is also worn as shade for the eyes the women appear to be in greater want of some becoming co- costume even than the men 
Mm-hmm. They were a little more naked than the men. Is that what he's saying? I, I, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I did not look at them. <laughs> <laughs> the naughty bits. <laughs> Especially not the naughty bits. <laughs> uh, that, that meeting with the queen, uh, the, the day after, I, I guess, I had a question because... Uh, they invite her onto the Beagle mm-hmm. and that they, evening they for put on the Ritz for her, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then he mentions rockets exploding. Are they doing a fireworks display <laughs> yeah. for the Queen? <laughs> yes, they are. Like Isn't that it. awesome? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. This this just uh, captured my imagination. But it, the uh, section for November twenty fifth is really short. It's only a paragraph mm-hmm. or so. Um, I know. I was thinking about that too. Like, I don't know if you guys have ever watched or read Horatio Hornblower which is like during the Napoleonic Wars and Mm -mm. it's like British naval ships. Um, But like they'll do these like, you know, showing honors and colors and stuff when Mm -hmm. people come on the ship. And I I was just thinking about that. I was like, oh, they actually like, I guess what struck me is they actually respected her as a leader by doing this. Yes. I mean, Fitzroy was actually very impressed with her and he writes about it in his own uh, records. Yeah. Um, Which they probably wouldn't, they would not, respect a European woman in the same way, probably. Ooh, interesting thought. You know, I mean, I guess this is, Victoria's still on the throne, is that mm-hmm. right? I think so. Yeah, so Maybe. I guess, I mean, they have a queen, re- you know, that region, there, but. Yeah, yeah they, they did treat him very well, and, and Darwin even seems surprised how well-behaved everybody was on the ship, right? Like, <laughs> they used the, the, the forks properly and the cups <laughs> properly, and it was all, it was all good. <laughs> They, they sing boisterous. Uh, and she candy. seemed unhappy with the, the boisterous. Well, I, I be a hymn. <laughs> I, uh, I think that's the other thing that struck me about how you describe the Tahitians is like how happy they are. Like mm-hmm. it's consistent, like talking about how merry they are, how happy they are. They're having this good time on the boat that they all come and meet them on all the on all the canoes when they come into the harbor. To the harbor. Um, and he contrasts that when we get to New Zealand. It's much a different reception. Yeah, reception. <laughs> so in this section too, this is where I think we mentioned this, that where Darwin, you can start to see that he is uh, thinking about home, right? That he's like you said, Sarah, he's around a bunch of English mm-hmm. or he's the influence of English men and women, I guess, mostly men. Yeah. But, so one of the mental and geographical uh, marks that he had in his head was this thing called the antipodal um, Mark, which is this idea, if you can imagine taking a, a ginormous uh, knitting needle and skewering, skewering uh, England and having it pierced through the center of the earth, it would pop out the other side of the globe. Well, that spot is called the antipodal uh, median. And of course, Fitzroy being the excellent captain that he is and uh, chart keeper and uh, navigator, they knew exactly when they were going to hit that point that antipodal point, which is just directly across from England, uh, I guess, in your imagination. And so for Darwin, that was a moment of, of importance to him because it meant he was on his way home, he thought. And so he writes this uh, little bit here where he's thinking about, we are one league nearer to England. These antipodes call to one's mind old reflections of childish doubt and wonder. Only the other day, I looked forward to this airy barrier as a definite point in our voyage homewards. But now I find it, and all such resting places for the imagination are like shadows, which a man moving onwards cannot catch. Mm, poor Chuck. Yeah, poor Chuck. <laughs> I'm getting close, but it's just it's, running away from me. Yeah. 
it will run away from him even further. <laughs> yeah, he gonna, has no idea. It's going to take dun, a while. Dun, dun. But the, the majority of the journey is behind him. Yeah. I, I liked this uh, statement earlier in that same paragraph on December 19th. He says, it is necessary to sail over this great ocean, meaning the Pacific, uh, to comprehend its immensity. And, you know... On a 90-foot-long boat. God. Yeah, I thought a so. very I, tiny boat. I, part of me, I have to think, like, when he got to Tahiti, it didn't matter what the hell was there. He was just going to be like, I'm off the boat, man. You know, like, finally. And that would be a different. rough voyage. Yeah. It was, what, 3,200 miles or that's, whatever? That's what he said um, roundabout. Yeah, through the rough... And what do you say about the Pacific? It's a oh, that ill-named... It's, that is not the... Proper name. <laughs> it was not very pacifying. All right. So, anything else you guys want to talk about Tahiti before we move on to New Zealand? I think the uh, the sun is setting as we sail away uh, <laughs> behind the mountains of Tahiti as we move further on toward. You're listening to Discovering Dawn. You're listening to Discovering Darwin. Today we've been talking about uh, Darwin's adventures in the uh, big blue Pacific. Uh, We've just left Tahiti and we are on our way to New Zealand. And if the quality of a visit can be measured by the number of canoes in in the flotilla that welcomes you to the (laughs) island, I would say Tahiti was a rousing success. And New Zealand may be less so. Yeah, here's what he says about it. That's great. Uh, In several parts of the bay, little villages of square, tidy-looking houses are scattered close down to the water's edge. Three whaling ships were laying at anchor, and a canoe every now and then crossed from shore to shore. With these exceptions, an air of extreme quietness reigned over the whole district. Only a single canoe came alongside. This and the aspect of the whole scene afforded a remarkable and not very pleasing contrast with our joyful and boisterous welcome at Tahiti. In, in the diaries that uh, you've read, mm-hmm. um, are there sections where Darwin goes, uh, made it here, number of canoes and welcome party, <laughs> uncountable. Uncountable. <laughs> Fifteen. <laughs> Only one. Frowny face. <laughs> Womp, womp. That should be the new emoji, right? Hashtag yeah. womp, womp, womp. <laughs> it, is, it is quite stark, right? We didn't read the entry for Tahiti, but it definitely is a, It's in contrast. Mm-hmm. Um, this seems like a sleepy town with nobody there to say hi to us. And, so, and the plants at a distance, nothing but fern. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I underlined that section. <laughs> nothing but fern. He's clearly not very happy. He, yeah, right he now. is just like not feeling... Oh, here's my favorite quote. This is December 22nd. So they had just got there. This is the next day of of arriving. And remember now they're in the South Pole, so December would be summer months for them. Remember? So he goes, in the morning, I went out walking, but I soon found that the country was very impractical. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very impractical country. I don't know what that means. I mean, all the hills are... Impracticable? Impracticable. Impracticable. Oh, you're right. It's not impractical. It's impracticable. All the hills are thickly Unable covered. Unable to be practiced. Practical? <laughs> I don't know. Can you Google that? What the heck? You're right, Josh. I always read it as impractical, which I thought was a funny turn of phrase. It is, it is strange. Impracticable. 
because as you said, Josh, the hills are thickly covered with tall fern together with low brush, which grows like a cypress. Impossible in practice to do or carry out. So one cannot move around the landscape is how I would interpret that. Oh, I see. Right. With all the fern and all of these low-lying bushes. But in the, uh, the towns, he says, it was quite pleasing to behold the English flowers in the gardens before the houses. There were roses of several kinds, honeysuckle, jasmine, stalks, and whole hedges of sweet briar. I underlined all that and wrote in caps, invasives. Yes. <laughs> and one thing that I've mentioned to both of you before we started recording is that it's striking to me that Darwin, you know, is constantly cataloging things and thinking big picture ideas about the things that he's cataloging. And here he's seeing these English plants in a faraway country and is not thinking, hey, these shouldn't be here. I wonder what that's going <laughs> to do to the native uh, plant uh, and animal community. Mm-hmm. No, he's thinking, oh, man, I miss England. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This right here, this is nice it to feels see. like home. Yeah. A little bit. A little and, bit. And this becomes very... Uh, uh, Evident in this New Zealand section because right because there's a lot of English missionaries and other land grabbers because that's what's going on. These English uh, are showing up and they are um, bringing with them some con- uh, convicts. There's some indentured servants, right. um, and they're grabbing land and they are setting up shop and they're trying to convert it to a very a model English village. And that's the first time Darwin really sees that uh, memory being, uh, or seeing those images of England that he has been gone for four years. And he also makes mention of the hills. Nearly every hill within the, the local countryside has some sort of fortification, right? Yeah, ancient fortification, not yeah, modern. Not new, but, but fairly old, um, which called to mind you know, landscape effect, legacy landscape effects from old civilizations, but it also kind of gives some clues into the disposition of the the people who inhabited New Zealand, right? There wouldn't be a ton of forts if there wasn't a need for a ton mm-hmm. of forts. And so this is sort of leading us toward Darwin making some observations about the disposition of the New Zealanders mm-hmm. that are in contrast to the Tahitians. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So like just in relation to that, just a really short um, quote from Darwin. He says the warlike nature of New Zealand. Oh, sorry. Let me start that again. I should think a more warlike race of inhabitants could not be found in any part of the world than the New Zealanders. So it was just like, boom, straight up noticing that. And, um, he also compares explicitly the Tahitians and New Zealanders, saying, looking at the New Zealander, one naturally compares him with a Tahitian, both being belonging to the same family of mankind. The comparison, however, tells heavily against the New Zealander. He may, perhaps, be superior in energy, but in every other respect, his character is much of a, of a much lower order. One glance at their respective expressions brings conviction to mind that one is a savage, the other a civilized man. It would be vain to seek in the whole world of New Zealand a person with the face and mind of old Tahitian chief Utame. Their figures, now referring back to New Zealanders, are tall and bulky, not comparable in elegance with those working classes in Tahiti. 
Both their persons and houses are filthy and dirty and offensive. The idea of washing either their bodies or their clothes never seems to enter their heads. Um, that is a great quote that you just read because um, it does capture his sort of disdain for them. But I also recognize, I was talking to Josh, Josh and I were talking about, um, was this edited? And Josh was asking right. me questions about the voyage, who did he edit it, who edited it, mm-hmm. how much it reflects. And I went back and read the diary, mm-hmm. which he wrote as he was on the ship. And that section, Sarah, I marked because <laughs> in the diary, there's similar but quite interesting editorial interesting. Um, excur- uh, ex- excitation or editing. So, um, so you, you, you read a section there where he's talking about, um, in the evening I went with Captain Fitzroy and Mr. Baker, one of the missionaries, to pay a visit, and they wandered around the village, and then that's where you, he starts talking about the description of the people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in his diary, he says... Um, this, he goes, uh, this is the largest village and, one, and will one day, no doubt, increase to a chief town. Besides a considerable native population, there are many English residents. These latter are of the most worthless character, and amongst them are many runaway convicts from New South Wales. There are many spirit shops, and the whole population is addicted to drunkenness and all kinds of vice. As this is the capital, a person would be inclined to form his opinion of the New Zealanders from what he saw. But in this case, his estimate of their character would be too low. <laughs> so he talks about how the, 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 there's a bunch of whites who look and act bad as well. Mm-hmm. But when he writes the voyage, he edits that out and only sort of talks about the natives in a sort of dis- disdain, um, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, I, th- I think the filters through which Darwin's thoughts travel um, from diary to publication uh, it, that has been one of the more interesting mm-hmm. uh, parts of this this project that mm-hmm. we've undergone. Uh, seeing his thoughts sort of uh, gathered and collated and then even maybe edited by himself 10, 20 years later uh, is, yeah. is fascinating. And, you know, Sarah, you were talking earlier about the way he described the, or, uh, yeah, the Tahitian women. Mm-hmm. And when I went back and looked at the diary, it, there wasn't much difference there. And one realizes, you know, if you think about it, well, the diary, he knows his family's going to read. Mm-hmm. So, there, you know, it goes back to this, like, sort of meta-analysis of levels of what really happened, what was mm-hmm. he willing to put in the diary, and then when he converted the diary to popular fiction, or nonfiction, I should say, what did he decide to edit in and out and change the tone? Because it's clearly in his diary he has a lot of disdain for a lot of the European New Zealanders that does not make it into Which is interesting because I feel like book. that comes out more in Australia. It like does. Like, he does talk a lot more, but I and guess they're convicts. It's even stronger <laughs> in his diary, and I have a okay. quote for you that's pretty impressive. Interesting. Yeah. So you're right. It does. And it, that's actually another one of those things that I find interesting. So he, he in the beginning of the Tahitian chapter talks about him trying to evaluate the impact of missionaries on the, on the people. And Josh, you gave, gave a great quote where he's like, oh, it could be a positive thing, right? It's a very positive thing. But one of the things that happens is he goes into New Zealand and then Australia, his uh, mind ultimately changes. And in, there's a, in his diary, he has a, a footnote where he basically says, and he writes, 
I must confess that after having visited Sydney, my admiration of the missionary establishment is considerably diminished. But I think it's that, that, mm-hmm. that uh, for whatever reason, the way New Zealanders and, and, and the way the missionaries treated the Aborigines in Australia, which was really horrific. It, continued through yeah. to the 60s. <laughs> we can talk about that in the last section. But yeah, I th- it, so I think it's, he's starting to see the, 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 the cost of the missionary. But also, work. I mean, it's kind of interesting because like, it's not like there was anybody but missionaries on Tahiti, whereas in Australia, you know, you had, and New Zealand, since we're in New Zealand, mm-hmm. let's do that. You have people there that are basically trying to make a buck. Yes. Right? Um, That's true. Europeans, Quite right? Different. So it's yeah. a very different context of what you know what the melu is that the missionaries are are dealing with because they're also dealing with these pretty nasty europeans right yeah i wonder why tahiti didn't become the sort of land grab it became you know it's not that it's well, where the whaling so vertical shows and yeah. like um, right yeah. and dissected yeah. but it's also very remote compared to new zealand right? yeah oh, like at true. least new zealand's near oh that's a good point yeah and you know it's it's if you think about darwin makes the mention that you can't compare an island to a continent, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Tahiti is more island-like, and I know that New Zealand's not very big, but compared to Tahiti, significantly bigger. Significantly bigger. Significantly yeah. bigger. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think it's interesting to to hear that thought from from Darwin that you just read, James, because, yeah. I don't know. It, it seems like a person who is really struggling with these types of of issues. Well, I wonder why. Well, maybe not too much wonder, but it's interesting that he would ex they would edit out his negative observation of the Europeans right, there, yeah, and yeah. only and, leave behind. The and so, in his diary, does he still have all this stuff that he was saying about the New Zealand? Oh yeah, stuff? yeah, okay. that's all there. So yeah, so it just cuts that just part out. out. The, who is he selling the book to? Yeah, right. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, exactly. I, you know, maybe not. So the the other interesting thing here, though, is that, uh, Sarah, you did some research on the colonization of New Zealand mm-hmm. and, and the people that uh, sort of uh, wandered through the ocean from island to island, just mm-hmm. bouncing from place to place and colonizing. Uh how are the people from Tahiti and the people from the New Zealand, the, the natives, mm-hmm. and how then are I guess Australia to too, right? And, and Australia, right? And and how, and are, how are all yeah, these people? Yeah. Uh, and the word, the, the, I guess, the New Zealanders are called Maori, right? Mm-hmm. But right. It, interesting that name didn't really become codified until 1900s, and so they didn't call themselves that back when Darwin was hmm. there, and that's why you notice he doesn't use that term yeah. in the book. Okay, I didn't know that. I mean, I wouldn't have been surprised if they called themselves that and he didn't call them that. Well, it's, it's like what Jeremy Payton says. When you when you sort of interpret their name, it means the people of this land. Right, yeah. Right? But yeah. Um, the other thing that's interesting, too, just real quick, and before you start, Sarah, is that New Zealand at that time, when Darwin was there in 1835, wasn't officially any colony. So it didn't really get officially associated with the United Kingdom until 1840. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's a it's a wild west of Europeans going there and just negotiating with local chiefs f- for the land and taking over. That's pretty wild. So tell us, Sarah, about the yeah, like Josh said, what about the, the these original peoples yeah, of the right. area? Yeah, sure. Like this was fascinating because it was something I didn't really know anything about until I started looking at it. And, and James, you were the one like, oh, New Zealand was like the last major landmass to be settled by humans. And so yeah, estimates are that. Um, 
humans hit New Zealand in about um, 1250, 1280 AD, right? Which is insane, right? Yeah, Yeah, we're like so middle ages of Europe, people are just hitting New Zealand. And um, so where are they, where are they coming from? Um, Well, let me go a little bit further back to how did people even get into these oceanic um, islands of the Pacific? And um, that was that you had people moving in from um, the islands Southeast Asia. So think Philippines, think parts of Indonesia, Malay, that kind of region. Um, that at a, you know about 1400 BC, they're moving into um, a region called the Bismarck Archipelago, which is kind of to the east of Papua New Guinea. Um, if you can kind of put that in your mind, so that's north of Australia then, right? Okay. Um, and at that time, they kind of coalesce into a culture that's been called the Lapita culture. Um, and it was relatively easy for them to move through these regions that we've been talking about because you can kind of hop Scotch Islands. But now they're kind of at the precipice <laughs> of the, <laughs> the end of, of land that can be seen, which is that it's now 400 miles of open ocean to the next island from here. And so that created a barrier barrier for a while that they didn't hop that until um, about uh, 1400, or sorry, I think I said that before, until about 800 BC, okay? So now we have this Lapita culture and then they finally make a jump now into other areas you may be familiar with. So uh, Samoa, Tonga, Fiji. Um, And this seems to be the epicenter then of the migration into the rest of what we tend to today think of as Polynesia. Right, which is that big triangle. Is it like Easter Island, Hawaii, and then what's the... New Zealand. New Zealand is the the bottom corner. And and when you look at that, that is actually an area larger than North America. (laughs) Of ocean, right, <laughs> with very, very occasional it, tiny little islands. Yeah, and the <laughs> currents are going, and the wind currents the opposite are going direction. direction of what you want to go, right? The yeah, winds are blowing they, east to west, yeah. and they're migrating west, west to east. east. It's, it's bananas. Like, uh, Sarah, you dropped one of uh, one of these figures from a, a paper that mm-hmm. you uh, found when you were doing research on this, and it is the the map, right, of mm-hmm. the dispersal of yeah. of this culture throughout. Uh, Oceania is yeah. that yeah basically um, and it calls to my mind two things one of those is propagule pressure right yeah which absolutely. is which is in um, invasive species biology the ability for uh, a species to spread into a brand new habitat it also calls to mind the I don't know the using this propagule pressure idea that the more propagules or the more um, uh, uh, biological stock that you have, the easier it is to invade or mm-hmm. colonize a new area. But you, you have to land, if you're a propagule, <laughs> you have to land in a patch of habitat that's suitable for you. And if you're a human, that means that you have to find an island. Like your little boat has to <laughs> find a tiny little island that has enough resources to support the people on the mm-hmm. boat and their offspring. And it just strikes me as the most insane thing to think yeah. 
like you're on an island, everything's great. You've got food plants, you've got maybe whatever livestock you brought with you. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And then one day your brother goes, Hey, what if we get in the boat, all of us and just like (laughs) head out in the ocean, go see man and just go. And, and then 400 miles later, (laughs) you luck upon an, yeah, a landmass. It's insane. It's yeah. I, I just can't imagine. And I, I think you're right. Like there clearly had to be some kind of population pressure to make people like, yo, I got to get out of Dodge. Because there, you have to imagine that there were many vessels that, that lit out and never came back and, and never, never came hit back anything. and never made it anywhere. Yeah. yeah. You know, it makes the story even more impressive. So in, when we lived in Hawaii, I became obsessed with that whole idea of the Polynesians, Polynesian culture, the colonization and this epic journey that they took using very primitive technology. But then you, when you look into this, these people not only, Josh, moved into that island, they brought with them pigs and yeah. chickens and 25 different species of food. Sweet potato yeah, is one taro. of the items they have, taro. And they were bringing these food. And, and think about that. That's like, we're going to bring these food things we could eat, but we're not going to eat them. Yeah. We're going to keep the potatoes f- away from the salt water and protect them from rot. And, and from the animals. And from the animals. Right? And we're going to keep everything alive for this long-ass journey to where, I don't know, but we're going to get there. Yeah. And then, you know, that I think also, of course, improves their colonization success because they brought with them the food stocks and the uh, resources they might need, not sure. knowing what yeah. the island would offer. Yeah, that w- and certainly that would improve your ability to survive. It's pretty impressive what these people did with yeah. a very primitive, and by our mm-hmm. standards, no GPS, no. And it, I don't know, it's just why, like, it's so, you know, I think, you know, we think about how recently the new world was colonized, right? And, but we're talking the last ice age, right? And Which is, what, 16,000? You know, 20, yeah, 20 thousand years ago, right? People are coming over on the Bering Land so Street. And are those people that were making their way across the Bering Land into North mm-hmm. America, are they similar to the people that were making this journey with an Asian? They're, uh, they're from more northern. Right. So, yeah, I, I have to say I didn't, I didn't look closely that broadly now what was interesting to me when i was kind of trying to look at who were these peoples that were moving their way into polynesia there are some interesting things that you do not find genetically in the people in polynesia and that is that you do not find markers from taiwan which would be kind of the northern part of like where we think these peoples were coming from and there's also no linguistic ties there we also find um, no genetic signatures of Papuans, of people from Papua New Guinea, um, which again is on the way going here. Um, so it is. It seems to be, you know, it's almost like this. Of course, it wasn't this way, but you think about it as this thing, single-minded. We're going to get to these places, well, but we don't know what those yeah, places yeah, are. But they didn't seem to pick, pick up these other peoples along the way. And James, you said when I first went into the spiel, what about the Australians? Yeah, no, Australians, Aboriginal Australians, no connection. I mean, obviously, there's a connection way back, but that connection is much further back in time. Um, And so this is a very, um, you know, it is it's a really cool example of how migration, bottleneck effects, founder effects can very much influence um, populations. And they have a very... um, you know, relatively narrow set of um, mitochondrial haplotypes that are, are found within this huge region <laughs> of Polynesia because of these kind of founder effects. And, and the, the, the people of Tahiti 
and the people of New Zealand, the natives, are quite different. They, there are certain uh, similarities in, in behavior, like mm-hmm. the tattooing and mm-hmm. ornamentation of their bodies. But it's pretty clear, like you were saying earlier, Josh, that the New Zealand, the Maui that we call mm-hmm. them now, they were definitely more aggressive. Mm-hmm. And cannibalism was a real phenomenon. And, and Darwin even, I think, talks about an example of a chief killing a slave who was supposed to be watching the, the fields and, and they had just planted sweet potatoes and this individual was supposed to sit and overnight and watch the fields and prevent the wild pigs from coming in and eating the sweet potatoes. But Darwin's, their, the beagle sailed into the harbor. The kid got excited, came down to, the, to see the ship because that was the so The one cool. excited kid. Yeah, came to him. <laughs> and then because when he did that, the hogs came into the farm and they ate all the, wild, the sweet potatoes. And so the chief hit the kid in the head with a stone ax, killed him and roasted him and ate him and fed some of them to the dogs and everything. And, and then that was sort of Darwin's introduction to, to New Zealand. New Zealand. <laughs> right. And that and kind of interaction is not described in Tahitian people. We, it's no, no, yeah. yeah. No. Um, I almost made a Darwin the Gourmand joke and I'll just <laughs> hold on to it. Uh, you know, Flavortown? <laughs> take you on a one-way trip to Flavortown. Um, <laughs> Uh, he also, Darwin also mentions the records of contact with these folks from Cook and other uh, British citizens. And he says, um, their conduct on first seeing a ship as described by Captain Cook strongly illustrates this, talking about their warlike nature. The act of throwing volleys of stones at so great and novel an object and their defiance of come on shore and we will kill and eat you all shows uncommon boldness. <laughs> I love it. I, I just, I'm like, yeah, you show up, you step foot on here, you're lunch. I'm yeah. eating you. Yeah, they were, they were pretty aggressive by all accounts. And, and it sounds, and that's where I think the, the, the it's almost like this intermediary between the Tahitian mission interaction and the, which was kind of benign and fairly positive. Here, Darwin points out, yeah, it kept them from being, maintaining this cannibalism, but they still do it. They still will kill and eat uh, a slave that misbehaved. They have no problem with that. And one chief even said, yeah, I'd kill all my wives if they were a problem, right? I'll just, all five of them. And then he even told a story about a, a chief that went back to England, was still angry at another chief, remember that? And, and when they got back to New Zealand, he killed them. Yeah, and they were very excited about having muskets and weapons because that ch- they went to war. He tells a story about a, ch- a chief who they were trying to talk out of going into war with another a group, and the chief said, well, my gun... gunpowder's getting old anyway. <laughs> so. <laughs> so let's go to war. I don't want to waste it. It's a waste. Right, so yeah. their, their, their love of warfare um, is quite evident compared to the other islands, which, I, you know, as an anthropologist, I imagine that would be an interesting question about why culturally that becomes the norm versus other places where it's not so much the norm. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is interesting too. Yeah, I really wonder why that is because um, it seems like they would have so many more resources on New Zealand relative to Tahiti, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so why that I wonder if competition? It's, I mean, this is just spitballing here, but I wonder if it's because New Zealand is such a large landmass, you can fragment people into clans yeah. and groups, and then they can start hating each other. Where in Tahiti, you're sort of stuck. Like in Hawaii, you had inter-island conflicts, right. but not within much conflict an with an island. And I know nothing about New Zealand's bi- native biological diversity, but 
Darwin's descriptions of Tahiti are, you know, look at all the bananas and yeah. coconut. Yeah. Bananas yeah. rotting on the ground. Yeah, there's yeah. so much, yeah. so many resources here. And his descriptions of New Zealand are nothing but fern. <laughs> and fern root, which is not that tasty, yeah. but is it's everywhere. edible. And he does make the mention that uh, New Zealand, as it was when he was there, is essentially famine-proof because there just is so much fern. And I guess it calls to mind, like, how many species of fern are we talking here? Is it is a monoculture of fern? Yeah, I don't I don't know, but the 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 predominance of fern is actually a function of the colonization of the island. And so, so you know, I went on another tangent. It was I was just curious about like what was the impact of the um, what are now the Maori when they they came to New Zealand, and it seems like most evidence suggests that they um, that much of the both islands ended up burning within 200 years of them landing uh, on the islands okay. and that this actually caused a, a change in the, they, um, a change in the, the, the flora obviously um, and that even today after burning you get a much different forest that re um, that has a positive feedback on things that will burn more oh, more okay. more likely to burn and that these ferns are a common thing after burning so i think some of that right is that we're all as you had brought up earlier josh what is the impact of humans when they come into new places um and i think um that's one of the things that that um we're seeing here and then of course the other thing is that um that we haven't really talked much about the biology yet but what's so unique about, i mean if you say new zealand to somebody who knows nothing about it what's the first thing you're going to say lord of the rings well, that, yes. Hobbits. <laughs> well, that too. Giant birds. <laughs> oh, uh, there we go. That was a little oh, I was going to say flat concords, and I was thinking, we have all yeah. the rocks. <laughs> I was thinking, you know, kiwi, right? That's the, the term of endearment for Business people from socks. New Zealand. Yes. Yeah, which is not mentioned by Darwin at all. Right, exactly. I, yeah, and I, I can't explain that, but, you know. There is no animal descriptions no, in New Zealand. Except that he says, that he says at one point, and he also says that they're is no he says animals yeah native animals but uh, james and i talked about we think he means mammals mammals uh but yeah within about 200 years let's clarify that for the listener because this is actually interesting right Right. so new zealand very large continent our island i guess it's an island and Darwin just kind of off the cuff says, oh, yeah, there's no native mammals, land, land mammals. Animals, which he means mammals. And of, the, of New Zealand, yeah, the only native mammal is a bat. Right. And there's marine mammals, but no terrestrial mammals. Right. And there's, so that, I think, is interesting for Darwin again. again that if he he's, doesn't do anything with. He, just he doesn't do anything it. with it, right. Yeah. I mean, later in Origin of Species, right. he starts to realize, wait a minute, this oh, makes no sense. You got this huge chunk of land that could have support lots of mammals. In fact, they introduce mammals and do well with it. But, yeah. you know. Yeah, but, you know, so in terms of, like, thinking about these giant land birds then because there were no mammals, right? We now understand today island biogeography, you don't, you have this missing kind of ecological role available and that these land birds um, took over. These but land birds being the, the moa. moa, right? And, and there's the kiwi, which the moa was extinct by the time Darwin got there, right? That's right. And, and so this research that I was looking into suggests that... Um, these and moa when we say moa it's not just one species there's multiple species but that within um 150 years of humans hitting new zealand uh we would have had the economic if you will extinction of these large land birds which means you you couldn't hunt them they were still around and by 200 years 
completely extinct. And this so this would be caused by the native hunting and, and the burning, the, the which, combination of hunting and burning. Yeah. And he points out that the native New Zealanders, you would describe them more as a, um, a hunter gatherer society, right? Because mm-hmm. he he laments that they don't farm you try to set them up with sheep and they don't take care of them and so their kind of culture is not they're more nomadic and or which is hunter gatherer again strange because genetically and linguistically they are descended from the polynesian peoples who as you just mentioned before came across these oceans with 25 different food items Mm -hmm. right so you know what happened culturally that Again, maybe it was because you came here and there was all these giant delicious birds to eat mm-hmm. that you were just like, eh, I don't oh. need to do this stuff. Can you imagine a, a moa wing? Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Share that with the family. Mm. Uh, the, sure. uh, the breast meat. There's all. <laughs> yeah. I guess there wouldn't be much thighs. breast meat, right? Because it'd all be thigh. Yeah. Lots yeah. of thighs. The dark meat, which I like. But, you know, when you think about it, like, I guess I can understand why, like, their agricultural ways might have gone away, even if it takes 150 years, right? Mm. You're talking many, seven five, generations, right? Mm-hmm. Probably at least six, seven. Um, yeah, I guess that, that that kind of way of living could go away in the amount of time. Yeah, yeah. Look at North America. Here in the United States, what, what lifestyle we had back in the 1800s that right. we don't have now, yeah. right? So one of the things that I think is interesting about this New Zealand, if we could finish on this, is this contrast between him describing a impractical or impracticable land, impractable, <laughs> that's you know that he's not impressed with biologically. We're also kind of confused by his lack of interest in geology and biology at this point. I mean, he never mentions the kiwi, as it's not it's not even mentioned, and that's right. a pretty cool unique bird and multiple species it, in New Zealand. There's like seven, I think seven or eight species yeah, of the kiwi. He they even, should be on both islands, right? Oh yeah. At least are. somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. He doesn't even mention them. Just So one of the things that I think is interesting about the contrast is between his view of New Zealand native animals and people or lack of any interest in the native animals um, with the contrast of the missionaries and the very English land, right? Like you were talking about earlier, Josh. So he takes this... Uh, trip to return Richard Matthews to his brother up in uh, uh, Waimate, Waimate, yeah, which is this epic, not too much of an epic trip, but it's a a 15-mile journey up. But it's good roads. It's paved and flat. Yeah, flat, and and I think some boats. They take a boat up for a while, and then they jump off and walk, and it's not that difficult because there's a waterfall. They take a boat for the first part and then make their way up there. So this is his description of this, which I thought was... um, at length, we reached Waimate after having passed over so many miles of uninhabited, useless country. <laughs> the sudden appearance of an English farmhouse in its well-dressed fields, placed there as if by an enchanter's wand, was as exceedingly pleasant. So, you know, this con- you know, like you were saying, Josh, the, the, to us, biologically, the, this this house with all these exotic plants and and basically an exotic lifestyle right we're gonna we're gonna recreate an english country home this is on page uh 449 of my voyage they show up at the house they get a cordial welcome after drinking tea with his family party we took a stroll about the farm at Waimate, there are three large houses where the missionary gentlemen, Mr. Williams, Davies, and Clark reside and near them are the huts of the native laborers 
On an adjoining slope, fine crops of barley and wheat were standing in full ear, in another part, fields of potatoes and clover. But I cannot attempt to describe all I saw. There were large gardens with every fruit and vegetable which England produces, and many belonging to a warmer clime. I may, I may instance asparagus, kidney beans, cucumbers, rhubarb, apples, pears, figs, peaches, apricots, grapes, olives, gooseberries, <laughs> currants, hops, gorse, for fences, and English oaks. Also many kinds of flowers. I like that. I can't describe it, so... I'll so just let me <laughs> tell you all the things right there. But it's very English, right? Oaks. They brought oak <laughs> acorns <laughs> and grew crazy. oak trees. Um, and so here's where all of a sudden this land that he described as useless country he starts to see is mm-hmm. uh, valuable, right? And now it's valuable because it's... Because it's been cultivated. It's cultivated English, with English style. Englishified. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I, it did strike me that when he was in New Zealand that everything he, that he saw as good were, were the cultivation and the transformation mm-hmm. into English kind of mm-hmm. context. And, and as we'll see when we get into the Australia section, he sort of shifts gears and talks about the, the downside of colonization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, one thing that I like about this section is, I mean, it is, it's Christmas Eve, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And they're hanging out here in this, in, in this nice English farmhouse. And uh, he says, um, Late in the evening, I went to Mr. Williams's house where I passed the night. I found there a large party of children collected together for Christmas Day and all sitting around a table at tea. I never saw a nicer or more merry group. And to think that this was in the center of the land of cannibalism, murder, and all atrocious crimes. <laughs> and I love this notion of out there, they're murdering, killing, and eating each other. But in here, we're having tea. And isn't that nice? Chestnuts. Chestnuts. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm dreaming. You know, Josh, life. as you read that, I was reminded of his description back in Tahiti. Do you remember when he talks about that uh, beach party? Yeah. Where all the kids start singing songs, just impromptu, the yeah. native mm-hmm. Tahitian kids, and he was just enamored with their, with their song and melody. Yeah, they're, they're, they're riffing, and they're singing about us, probably. But yeah, I don't yeah. Know. <laughs> but I don't know. But it was beautiful. But yeah, he doesn't say, oh, it's, it was as pleasant as that. Right? Yeah. You're right. It's, yeah. This is better. Yeah, this is, I can't imagine a, a better Christmas than yeah. for but. me. The, the other thing that struck me in that was, um, you know, I don't have the quote in front of me, but he, he, re, he basically went through a list of where they had been every Christmas on this oh, right, trip. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And it was just, like, you can tell how homesick he is and how much he, cause he says at the end of it, something like, I can, I can only wish that the next Christmas we will be back in the sweet bosom of, <laughs> of merry old England. Um, so yeah, I mean, of course, like, holidays make you wistful no matter who you are where you are and i can only imagine after four and a half years of <laughs> all of well, all four of years i guess right of all of this thing. well he does mention that uh he says this is on the december 24th entry um he says in the woods i saw very few birds and then um let's see with the exception of a small rat new zealand does not possess one indig- indigenous animal like you guys mm-hmm. said then he says, the several species of that gigantic genus of birds seem here to have replaced mammiferous mm. quadrupeds in the same manner as the reptiles still do at the Galapagos. So he, mm. he is kind of collating some stuff. Yeah. Uh, he can't help it. He's just <laughs> he's naturally dark. curious. This is what he's doing. But he, 
it is it is striking just how little of that content we have yeah. here. Yeah, I, I yeah. completely agree. And one last thing before we move on to Australia. Australia, Australia, land of sunshine and sharks. Do, I knew you were going to do that accent. <laughs> I knew it. Australia. Poorly, by the way. Good day, um, mate. Um, is that remembering if you go back and look at, you know, the, the Polynesian people have this beautiful um, art, artistry of, of body uh, tattooing, right? Of, of uh, annotating their bodies with tattoos. And um, the, the Maori, the New Zealanders are really uh, into face tattoos. And, and to, it was really interesting to me to see that Darwin was, was uh, put off by the locals' face tattoos because um, they were so striking and odd to him. But later he does notice and, and mentions that they tell him looking at an untattooed European is very unsettling to them. Yeah. <laughs> so he, he does, uh, you know, acknowledge, okay, it's all perspective, cultural well, and perspective. There is a, a point where he um, talks about the women that yes, are there. Yes, exactly. Okay, That's where so I was going to. Right. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Well, just, the, you know, that um, the, the, the women missionaries or the wives of the missionaries are trying to convince the young women Maoris not to get these tattoos. And they're just like, but we'll be, look so ugly. We just weep have to have a little bit and what was interesting about that story was there so they the women were were going we the, the native women were saying we have to go get to this tattoo artist who was visiting the island right so these these polynesian tattoo artists move from island to island to tattoo the local people there and that's such a cool element of their culture that we don't really appreciate right and that there's this famous tattoo artist that all the women were like we have to go to sit down there to get our lips tattooed because that's if we don't get our lips tattooed they will sag and we'll be unattractive as we get old so you hipsters you are just so not original not original (laughs) find the best tattoo well i'll um there's a beautiful um uh, website that I came across when I was doing research for this podcast about New Zealand tattoos, and there's a tattoo um, uh, tattoo artist in New Zealand. It has a beautiful historical analysis of authentic New Zealand tattoos because they still do them, mm-hmm. and they'll talk about. They show you the different um, forms and what they mean historically and, and such. So I'll, I'll put that on the uh, the web page for those who are interested in getting a Maori tattoo. <laughs> All right, I think we're done well, with okay, bef- New Zealand. Before we leave, I have the thing that we can we can read out as we as we voyage away. Oh yeah, from is this, New Zealand. Is this his ultimate interview yeah. of yeah. New Zealand? Yes. In that afternoon, we stood out on the Bay of Islands on our course to Sydney. I believe we were all glad to leave New Zealand. <laughs> it is not a pleasant place. Amongst the native, there is absent that charming simplicity that we found in Tahiti, and the greater part of the English are very refuse of society. Neither is the country itself attractive. <laughs> I look back to what bright one bright spot, and it is Wamate with its Christian inhabitants. The place that looked like England. Yes, yes. the place that looked like England. <laughs> hearts, and, hearts. and England is in its future, but not yet. <laughs> no, yeah. First, Australia. All right, we're going to do the next section. It will be Australia. You're listening to Discovering Dark. (laughs) 
Welcome back to Discovering Darwin. We're going to finish this last section of uh, Darwin's slow journey through uh, the Pacific area, where he is now in Australia. Australia. You can't help yourself. No, I can't. I can't. And I'm sure everybody's cringing right now, so I apologize. So this is chapter 19. Uh, sorry, is it 19? Yes. 19. 19. And he doesn't talk about canoes, does he, Josh? Nope. Not that I re- recollect. No, he just talks about sailing in and, yeah, and so being impressed with Sydney. Yeah, so he's not about it because it's like a much bigger European settlement, so he doesn't expect it. But damn it, if I'm going in the native places, I need to be having people in canoes. Yeah, and this is Sydney, right? It's a pretty yeah, big... Yeah, no, it's a big place. It's a big place, big Although town. Although, I, I, I found his description of it interesting because he was saying how you wouldn't even expect that there's a big city here as you're coming into the into the harbor right yeah sandstone cliffs and a big lighthouse and yeah and so that i like had to google earth it then like what does it look like today because of course i'm like what do you mean (laughs) then what about the sydney opera house darwin (laughs) (laughs) but like you can kind of like as you look at it like so i encourage listeners to go look at google maps to understand like how big this harbor really is and i think he's talking about just like coming into it and as you're coming into it you can't see the city and it's full of warehouses and uh big ships sitting in the bay and I love that he says, uh, um, my first feeling was to c- congratulate myself that I was born an Englishman. <laughs> well, it's the, the colonial ability of the British, right? right? Like he's talking about forging and carving the city from the stone that is Australia. And the fact that it's so big and bustling at this point in history. And it's it, all English. A, yeah, is a testament to British power. And it's always better to be the discoverer than the discovered. <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah, true. I think everyone would agree, yeah. But it also goes back to what you said, Sarah. This is the first time he's really coming into parts of the world which is British yeah. r- uh, ruled, mm-hmm. right? Because he's been in... South America, that's which true. is not. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. yeah, so this is totally, okay, now we're totally, and, yeah. and that's why it's magnificent. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, so he, he comes into Sydney, um, as you guys point out, and he points out that it's a pretty exciting and bustling town. The streets are regular. They're clean. They're broad. They're kept in excellent order. He talks about um, uh, new buildings and lots of new houses, and I thought that was very, very uh, funny. A problem that we still fund in Today, he says that people are complaining that rent is very expensive, <laughs> so living in the city is hard because uh, real estate is, is challenging. Um, so he, he, he seems to enjoy being into a, a sort of pseudo-English town and port town at this point. And then what does he do? He, he gets on a boat, or, sorry, gets on a wagon and goes on a very long journey in, inland, right? Yeah, and this is actually where I was thinking of earlier, like, the British have built roads, like a network of roads yeah. throughout the, the countryside. Yeah. So the, this is in Australia, not New Zealand, as I mm-hmm. mentioned earlier. Had my wires crossed. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, he ultimately is, is uh, sort of just looking on this landscape that's very arid and not very vegetatively diverse, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Just a bunch eucalyptus of eucalyptus everywhere. everywhere. Right. And, and he, he mentions that he says the roads were excellent and made upon the McAdam principle. And the McAdam principle is the way we make roads today. The McAdam principle is the idea that you put gravel down first as a substrate and then you put on top of that a hard surface. And as you said, Sarah, just there visually for those of you who 
you know, psychic powers, you knew what you did. You, you know, yeah, you tilt the, the sort of put a, a slope on the road so the water flows off. But more importantly, you're putting a road on top of a gravel padded surface so that it's really uh, has a strong foundation. So, yeah, he's he's moving through this this area that um, is clearly well established. He does note, interestingly, that. Uh, Australia is not able to have um, canal systems, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Right, and so all of the transportation of goods is gotta through. Got to be on the road. Got to be on the road, and that kind of puts a limit to how far inland you mm-hmm. can go. Which I think is really interesting to think about us uh, as we think about the impact the Europeans had to Australia, because he points out that kangaroos are very. He went on yeah. a kangaroo hunt right. and was can't find any damn kangaroos. Can't find any kangaroos. So the Europeans had a huge negative impact on the local fauna, but they were probably prevented from really decimating everything because of economic reasons. Well, also, but it's interesting too because like it would have been a double whammy, right? Because climatically, as you go to the interior of Australia, because you're sitting at what should be a desert climate, you mm-hmm. only have like and really truly habitable, you know, normal habitable range on the coast because you're getting that the oh. coastal rains right and as you get further inland you basically are into to desert um and you know only the aboriginal peoples who are not farming right, can can handle those kind of climbs so he 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 gets here he he describes this place as um very um active agriculturally right with uh, sheep farming mm-hmm. there's lots yeah. and lots and lots of sheep farm and and, and uh, British individuals who have established um, their farms but in, interestingly here is where he starts to run into the convict mm-hmm. working class right these individuals who are convicts who've been exported out of England and they have to serve a certain amount of time as indentured serv- uh, slaves basically for um, whoever the city or individuals and then so I, th- I thought it was funny as he as he looks at these people he's got these three kind of classes of people that he's he's trying to parse which is the rich uh farmers who have land landowners mm-hmm. who you know how they become landowners they just took the land from <laughs> aborigines yeah. and then you've got the convicts who are both male and female and he talks about the women convicts working who are having to work off their debt to whatever uh, British uh, um, claim they have. And then you have the native Aborigines, which he does refer to as Aborigines, I believe. He uses that term. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which he is, says they're rapidly declining. Yeah. 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 For, I think, for a couple of reasons. Um, yeah. It, it is interesting in terms of like his, his kind of love of the this landscape is kind kind of Englishified um, his understanding of why why maybe this place is further ahead than other places so let me just read a quote because then we can just talk about it um, in all respects there was a close resemblance to England perhaps the alehouses were more nu- numerous <laughs> the iron gangs or party of convicts who have committed here some offense appeared the least like England. They were working in chains under the charge of sentries with loaded arms. The power with which the government possessed by means of forced labor of at once of at once opening good roads through the country has been, I believe, one main cause of the early prosperity of this country. 
which is interesting because you know I think about you know colonialism in general and how oftentimes native peoples were used to do this right but in this case where they were exporting convicts from England and he recognizes it there that this is the reason why they have good roads and we have this kind of established um, community because we've been able to use slave labor in the in this case in convicts to do these things mm-hmm. and the aboriginal people are facing another challenge right that's a byproduct of colonization yes. they're not necessarily being enslaved right. but they're being exposed to diseases that they've never had exposure to before right which is really taking a toll mm-hmm. on their population yeah there's a yeah josh you know we're talking about this and i I hope you'll talk more about it. This this idea that Darwin is recognizing the impact of disease on the interaction between the Europeans moving into lands and, and interacting with the natives. Right. And so he says, um, wherever the European has trod, death seems to pursue the <laughs> aboriginal. We may look to the wide extent of the Americas, Polynesia, the Cape of Good Hope, and Australia, and we find the same result. Nor is it the white man alone that thus acts the destroyer. The Polynesian of Malay extraction has in parts of the East Indian archipelago thus driven before him the dark-colored native. The varieties of man seem to act on each other in the same way as different species of animals, the stronger always extirpating the weaker. So this, to me, was a troubling thing to read. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right? On one hand, he's talking about the diseases um, that the Europeans have introduced. And earlier he says uh, this decrease of the aboriginal people uh, is no doubt partly owing to the introduction of spirits to mm-hmm. European diseases, uh, even the milder ones of which, such as the measles, prove very destructive, and to the gradual extinction of the wild animals. So throwing together uh, introduction of diseases with that kangaroo hunt that he went on that uh, was not a very good hunt. Uh, with this notion that he's putting together of um, natural selection uh, and descent with modification. Like he's clearly, to me, collating all of the, the observations that he's made on this trip. And even though it's troubling to think of uh, civilizations as being either stronger or weaker um here I think we find him sort of trying to put these disparate pieces of the puzzle together and my question to James earlier was when did those puzzle pieces get put together Mm. was was this part of the voyage of the beagle true to the initial diaries or did he jot down like aboriginals are dying from diseases they're also dying uh, much like in other places of the world, just because we're killing their, their food sources and taking their land and resources. Um, and then did he put together this notion of, of uh, I'm, I'm using air quotes, survival of the fittest? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you know what, what's the timeline of the production of I, yeah. this It is interesting, though, that like he recognizes that it's not just like the superior white civilization shoving out right and so he recognizes this weird this thing where it's like oh basically if you have anybody new mm-hmm. coming into a place they're bringing in diseases that nobody can deal with right because when he talks about the malays pushing in 
and, and we have to sort of remind ourselves that the time frame of our own knowledge, right? So disease, the germ theory of, of disease yeah. right. did not really, really develop until <laughs> about 1849, yeah. which is, what, 17, mm -hmm. uh, 12, 13 years later. So John Snow. Like... King of the White North. Claw? King of the No, not the King of the North. But yes, his name is Jon Snow. He was the f he wrote an essay in 1849 on the mode of communication of uh, cholera. So he's the first one who recognized that maybe cholera was caused by particles being transferred from the feces into the water, and that he even thought of it being a cell. But the point here is that that's 10, 15 yeah. years later. So Darwin's working in a world in which germs and, and disease dynamics are not understood. But like you said, Josh, one pattern that was well-established, particularly with British sheep and cattle farmers, that when they brought sheep and cattle from mm -hmm. Europe into yeah. England, if they put those sheep and cattle in with a herd, it would cause disease. And, they would, and that interesting, weird... Um, why is this animal not sick, but mm -hmm. it causes but it illness? But everybody else to be sick. Yeah. yeah. He, they didn't understand it, and they, and, but they understood the pattern. Typhoid That's, Mary. Ty, yes, right, exactly. But they didn't, he, you know, they, so they had this pattern. They understood this, this sort of phenomenon, but they didn't understand the mechanics of that phenomenon. And, and Darwin there, as you were pointing out, recognizes the huge impact that Europeans had on these areas of the world, killing lots mm -hmm. and lots of people. Typhoid Mary had a little lamb. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I think what's most interesting about this last part of the of the of the voyage of of these three places of Tahiti, New Zealand, and Australia is that in Australia, his uh, his critical eye begins to be awoken. Right, so he starts to see the negative impact. Is he getting woke? He's getting woke. He's a woke Darwin. A little woke. <laughs> woke for the 19th century. Yeah, because he starts <laughs> to see the impact that the Europeans, and the, the negative impact that Europeans are having on the, no, the natives, both through disease dynamics, like you talked about, Josh, but also just uh, this idea that they um, just move individuals, hunt them down and or just physically pick them up and move them from one location to the other and put them in reservations. And so he talks about um, the, in the voyage, he's around, this is classic, the 30th, what friggin' month are we in, Darwin? January. January. Okay, so we're in January, you're right. If we're in Australia, it's January. So in January 30th on the voyage, he says, all the Aborigines have been removed to an island in Bass Straits so that uh, the lands enjoy the great advantage of being free from a native population. This most cruel step seems to have been quite unavoidable as the only means of stopping a fearful succession of robberies, burnings, and murders committed by the blacks, and which sooner or later would have ended in their utter destruction. Okay, yeah, it's, 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 yeah we're all just cringing here. So let's go back to his diary. How does Darwin, who's there witnessing the event, talk about it? Because remember, that's the voyage where he has now looked at his diary, as Josh was asking me. He's tweaked it for the new modern audience. This is years later, right? Yeah, yeah years later. You're absolutely right. So back in the diary, at that moment in time, he writes the following. The Aboriginal blacks are all removed and kept 
and then he puts in brackets, in reality as prisoners, in the promontory, the neck of which is guarded. I believe it is not possible to avoid this cruel step, although without doubt the misconduct of the whites first led to the necessity. Mm. So in his diary, he recognizes that the, the, Euro, the, the Englishmen in Australia have persecuted and abused the Aborigines so bad. And he even talks about how, um, this is really quite depressing, he talks about how um, they hunted them and moved them out, much like they did in um, other, other countries where they, they lined up shoulder to shoulder and moved the countryside to kill those Aborigines, Aborigines they encountered. Um, because they wanted to get rid of them. So he recognizes that the locals were just so awful to the natives and that it's not surprising the natives would then treat them you know, reciprocally bad. But in the, in the voyage, it sounds different, right? The tone is quite different. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, well, we have to get them out of here. And it's, uh, we're a great advantage of being free from the native population. It's a positive Again, spin. who are we selling this book to? Yeah, right, for real. So, and, 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 you know, he's a little bit older now, like some time passes. Yeah, but it's just, I mean, he does describe this whole hunting of people and, move, and, and moving them out in a, in a way that I guess I would read it negatively, and I assume he wrote it so that others would read, read it that way, but maybe, maybe not. They may read it. I'll go, yeah, that's how you get rid of vermin. It's hard to say. No. You mean in the diary? Yeah. Well, yeah. and in the voyage, because here he talks on uh, page, yeah, uh, on the 30th. He says, the, the plan adopted was nearly similar to the great hunting matches in India. A line was formed reaching across the island with the intention of driving the natives into a cul-de-sac on Tasman's peninsula. The attempt failed. The natives, having tied up their dogs, stole during one night's through the lines. So you know you get this idea that they're they're trying to move these humans like they're right. like they're rabbits or cattle, yeah. and somehow they outsmarted them. <laughs> yeah, she's who would think? She would think. So you know the, the the diary suggests that Darwin sees the negative aspect of that European approach to the the local population. The voyage is more sympathetic to that position, which mm -hmm. I think is like goes back to Josh's question of. Who is Darwin? You know, where does he stand when he writes these mm -hmm. kind of conflicting views? But ultimately, we're left with this idea that um, he sees the European interaction with the locals from Tahiti, fairly positive, New Zealand, this weird kind of half-assed antagonism, to Australia, full-blown antagonism. Mm -hmm. And part of that seems to be because of money. Mm -hmm. That goes back to what you yeah. guys were saying, yeah. right? Money to be made. Yeah, right. The, the biggest economic upside is in Australia, right? Yeah. And there's none in Tahiti. <laughs> so. Yeah. And so because you can make money in Australia, you're going to be more brutal mm -hmm. to the local people. Yeah. And one of the funny things in his diary, he doesn't put this in the voyage, and you'll see why in a minute. So one of the things that he, he is wrestling with <laughs> in Australia is why does anybody go to Australia, right? Because we, we have a large number of convicts. They, they go there because mm -hmm. of, you know, the choice. <laughs> this idea choice. that, well, the, 
I guess in England they gave you this offer, go to Australia and you're right. free. Yeah. Well, then you get to Australia, you're like, oh, no, you're oh, not you're free. <laughs> you're going to work for me. Yeah. But then he was wondering, he was trying to understand why good old English folk would go to Australia who are not convicts. Like, why would you go there? What's the attraction? And um, once he's in Australia, he recognizes, he talks about how the, how the, the rich Australians, the, the sheep owners and the farm owners, are really, really crass people that they, mm-hmm. right, that the, the, they're very unpleasant. They, they're, they've got a lot of money, but all they talk about is making more money, and all they can talk about is sheep. And he finds it very boring that they are so crass. And then he even mentions that in the, in the city, there's no bookstores. Like, their culture is, is void. They don't seem to be into art and culture. They're just all about making money. And so in the diary, he talks about... Um, uh, the the fact that they um, that they are so focused on one thing, which is mi- making money, and they seem pretty uninterested uh, in the arts. And he says, um, um, so he's talking about them, and he says, I am not aware that the tone of society has yet assumed any peculiar character, but with such habits and without intellectual pursuits, it can hardly fail to deteriorate. And, and then he puts in brackets, and become like that of the people of the United States. Oh, snap, <laughs> Chuck. Yep. The balance of my opinion is such, and that nothing but rather severe necessity should compel me to emigrate. So it's like, he's like, why would I go to Australia? You'd have to really force me to go. Wow. He, and he does say that, that uh, line about why would I ever uh, immigrate in the, the voyage. In the voyage, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that part is in the voyage, right? Yeah, the, the, but, the, but the rest of that is yeah, the, 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 right? the throwing shade on the US, United States of America. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah, say that to Asa Gray, Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> Won't do it. So what, what are the big takeaways from the Tahiti, New Zealand, and Australia sections of, of this book, do you think? Like in, in uh, a tweet-length statement. <laughs> What do you think the... I think it's a beautiful um, encapsulation of the complexity of missionary work. That you can missionary see the, work, yeah, specifically. The, yeah, you can see hmm. the positiveness of missionary work and the negative okay. aspects of missionary work. You go from, let's temper you from killing and, and women and children during war, and let's kind of make things fair and, and like you said Josh if you fa- fa- find yourself on an island you sure hope that they've been uh, you know, converted by missionaries because you might survive to look how horrible the Australian uh, the, the Europeans that show up in Australia treat the natives based on their views of you know, humans so I, to me that's what it is it's this interesting dial- inner, inner dialogue that Darwin's having with the value of missionary work with the natives. I'm way more simple minded than James. <laughs> Hashtag homesick. Oh homesick. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just, yeah, I think that, um, it's, you can see how much he misses home. He wants to go home. The fact that we don't get a lot of, we don't get a lot of biology. Um, the, there's a lot going on there. Just, there's a letter he writes to hooker. I think you, you could read that, okay. that of the, his homesickness. Yeah. Okay. Which so James just passed to me a quote that is a letter to Henslow written on January 28th. He says, Certainly I never was intended for a traveler. 
My thoughts are always rambling over past and future scenes. I cannot enjoy present happiness for anticipating the future, which is about as foolish as dog who dropped the real bone for its shadow. <laughs> yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah. That he's he, he, like you're saying, he's homesick yeah. and he thinks I'm not a good traveler. I, I need to be. I'm thinking of the future I'm of the past. About, yeah, I can't deal with the here and now now. Yeah. Here and now now. No, that's um, good. Yeah. Yeah. What was, do you think, Josh? I was thinking uh, colonization. Yeah. Um, it, you could think of missionaries as a type of Christian colonization, right? Mm-hmm. Like a, a mental colonization. Yeah. And here we have Darwin only comfortable when he's surrounded by very English surroundings. So I think that paired with ho- the homesickness mm-hmm. is the real meat here. And I was disappointed to see that the curious Darwin is somewhat missing. Mm-hmm. Well, it's so interesting because you get to, you think about it, you're on New Zealand. There's on, there's no mammals. You're on Australia. You got all these freaking weird marsupials. Cool. He says nothing about any of those things. Right. So our boy, our boy Charles, who's normally our, you know, like three mammals that I recollect that he talks about a kangaroo, which he never uh-huh. killed. Right. A kangaroo, kangaroo rat. rat that they chased into a tree yeah. and the platypus. He refers to it by his scientific name, which he may not have caught. He sees huh. them swimming in the in the. Oh in the yeah, animal, I totally don't a, a even remember reading sh- it. Shoots and kills one of them, and that's it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Now, in the origin of the species, he goes back and right, actually yeah. fills in those huge yeah. gaps. But yeah, in the voyage, you're absolutely right. There's nothing there. It's no biology. So weird. And yeah. so at the end uh, of the Australia chapter, he says, after several tedious days. From clouded weather on the 14th of March, we gladly stood out of King George's Sound on our course to Keeling Island. Farewell, Australia. You are a rising child, and doubtless someday will reign a great princess in the South. But you are too great and ambitious for affection, yet not great enough for respect. I leave your shores without sorrow or regret. <laughs> Boom. Boom. He Sassy. knows how to throw shade. I Man, mean, come on. He yeah. does. That's some Sassy. serious Victorian that, shade. It, it's, it's complimentary, and then he, like, guts you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that you're going to be a princess. Right now, you're just an unruly ugly, child. Like yeah. You're an unruly child that doesn't deserve respect. <laughs> wow. Wow. Sorry, so Australia. Just, I'm sure you've grown up much better. Oh, wait. Well, yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> whole continent I've just insulted. Edit. 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 You know what's funny? Just and people find us because they're looking for Darwin, Australia. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> hey, we have supplanted Darwin, Australia as a Google search. Ooh. But um, he does, you know what's funny? He does mention in his description of Australia their um, vast amount of coal. Yeah. And, and as does, a coal yeah. as an energy yeah. source. Yeah. Which is still true to this day right. and Australia is one of the major countries besides the United States of America that denies climate change (laughs) and has increased coal production or tried to. All right. So Darwin thinks he's going home, right? Yeah. He's he's thinking of the, (laughs) the, the beautiful shores of his own personal shire back in the, the, the kingdom of Britain. And uh, the next and last episode of discovering Darwin, we will rudely change that <laughs> perspective and we'll talk about darwin's uh, expedition from a, v- a variety of islands in the pacific and then back to south america dun, dun, dun. and then whole you've been listening to discovering darwin bye bye oh bye bye <laughs> josh uh i leave your shores without sorrow or regret <laughs>
Look at her butt. Look at her butt. Her butt. Butt, Becky. Becky. Look at her butt. 